Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Today we're going to be discussing pain, everything about pain, and we're going to be speak, speaking to specialist neurosurgeon Dr. Percy Miller. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you. Do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself, where you work, and uh, what you do? I was a neurosurgeon in private practice until approximately 2.13, 2.14. And then, you know, um, uh, with age and things and medical aid and stuff, I didn't really want to operate from that time onwards. So I started doing mainly medical legal work from 2.14 onwards. Um, situated at, at a building called the Center for Advanced Medicine, which I'm sure many people know. It's in Waverley, you know, opposite Melrose Arch. It used to be the old Sassman building. Anyhow, so I was doing the medical legal work, but still seeing patients for second opinions, not operating the same patients, uh, just basically by word of mouth or old patients. And um, it became apparent to me that one of the glaring uh, problems and abnormalities that we had in this area and in the whole of the northeastern um, Johannesburg was the question of chronic pain work. I'd always been interested in pain from my early days as a registrar in neurosurgery in the 1980s when I helped run the, the pain clinic at Johannesburg Hospital um, or the now Charlotte Hospital in the 1980s. So I've always maintained an interest in pain work um, in, in, when I was in private practice. But as I say, from 2.14 onwards, while I was doing work, um, it became a situation where I was getting more and more pain referrals. For example, from the chiropractic um, people working in the same building as me and from other medical, paramedical specialities, there was more pain work. So after a discussion with a whole group of people who all work in the clinic, literally in the, uh, in the same corridor at the Center for Advanced Medicine, we decided to start a chronic pain clinic. We're all interested in it. We all have our different skills. We all have our different baselines of clinical knowledge. And we started together. That's how it started. Why do people get chronic pain? What is the process of pain? And when does uh, acute pain turn into chronic pain? That, that of course, is a good question and the $1,000 question. What really happens is that there are a well-defined set of body responses or physiological responses to acute pain. The problem is that if acute pain goes on and on, whatever the illness or whatever the injury, if the acute pain is not treated or corrected or made better, it turns into chronic pain. And the whole point is to get the change in the central nervous system. It is actually a physical and a physiological and a chemical change. So chronic pain is a completely different entity from acute pain. So the answer to the question is why do people get chronic pain? It's simply a question of when acute pain for whatever reason, is allowed to run on and on an actual change in the central nervous system in the brain and the spinal cord occurs, which perpetuates the pain, almost as an evolutionary and body defense mechanism. And there's no real time interval. It's not a question of it has to be four months or five months or six months. And that's variable. It depends on so many variables, the age of the patient, uh, their psychological state, the nature of the injury which caused pain, 
or the nature of the illness which caused pain in the first place, but generally a four to six to eight month period of unremitting acute pain uh, stands a high chance of leading to a chronic pain problem if still not controlled. And uh, are there any specific injuries or diseases that predispose people to getting chronic pain or are there any uh, predisposing factors? Do we know who's going to get chronic pain and who isn't going to get chronic pain? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we do know this. The, the first thing is there are certain diseases and illnesses which lead to uh, chronic pain. For example, uh, there's a condition called shingles. That's an infection of the nerves with a herpes virus. And that occurs in middle-aged or elderly people, sometimes also debilitated people, people with diabetes and people with um, certain tumors like called lymphomas, blood cancers. These people are predisposed sometimes to develop shingles. And shingles, um, for example, if untreated or not treated correctly, is notorious for leading on to a chronic pain problem. Almost any nerve injury, if not treated correctly, or a partial nerve injury, and that can be a car accident, a bullet wound. The key is not so much a, uh, a complete nerve injury, but a partial nerve injury. For example, if a bullet wound grazes the nerve and causes a partial interruption of nerve, can lead to is notorious again in leading to a chronic uh, pain and a chronic pain syndrome. But there are others which which are um, perhaps less well-known but are more common. For example, degenerative back disease. Now, degenerative disease is a fancy form of arthritis. So you could say arthritis of all joints, but uh, when I say degenerative back disease, I'm talking about vertebral column disease, you know, lumbar spine, thoracic spine, these things, again, notoriously um, can lead to a chronic pain problem if the problem goes on again for long enough and is not controlled or treated. So all of these problems are people who are victims of a situation where the acute pain either could not be treated or was not treated adequately and satisfactorily. And now they are in real trouble once the chronic pain problem comes because the situation becomes in a sense, much worse than the acute pain problem and is also much harder to treat. Speaking about degenerative spine and back disease, we hear so, about so many people with back pain. Maybe let's move on to it. Is degenerative uh, sure. uh, spine disease, is that the most common cause of back pain and why is back pain so common? Well, back pain is common um, um, because of, uh, well, to a large extent, because of our evolutionary situation, because of the way we are made and the way we are born. Uh, human beings are walking upright. Uh, human beings are doing things all day long. The weight differential starting from, uh, let us say, the human head, which is heavy in pounds, the human head weighs 15 pounds, is, of course, sitting on the neck vertebrae, which in turn sit on the next weight-bearing area, which is the thoracic vertebrae, which in turn produces a weight situation right down to the uh, bottom of the lumbar vertebrae with the bottom triangular bone which supports it all called the sacrum. On top of all of this, there are certain parts of the spine which move. That's at the bottom of the neck spine or the cervical spine and at the bottom of the lumbar spine and these moving areas have a wear and tear situation. So you have a pain situation in human beings who are upright, walking on two legs, where you have a tremendous weight increase or weight differential uh, technical terms, we call it axial loading of the vertebral column. But on top of the axial loading, you've got wear and tear at the moving areas. So these areas start to break down. The more they break down, 
the more a, uh, what we call a cascade effect occurs where one problem leads to another. So if a joint goes in the vertebral column, the next thing that happens is that uh, the ligament supporting the joint goes. The next thing that happens is that the surrounding ligaments and the surrounding joints go. The next thing that happens is that a disc may pop out because the disc is in a sense supported and helped by joints so that there is a vast interaction of all of these different components and parts on each other. And uh, the end result is you get a, a massive degenerative change, um, which which occurs in human beings. But then I also have to stress, there's a tremendous psychological overlay in terms of how people bear chronic pain, particularly degenerative joint disease. There, there, there is no doubt that there are some people with degenerative disease that uh, can literally still live their lives. Uh, they are in pain and they are in discomfort. It doesn't mean to say that that must be accepted. But they live lives, and the other people who become literally crippled with all things being equal, the same amount of pain. So a huge amount of psychological overlay and and uh, fortitude and all kinds of character traits come into the situation. There's no doubt about that as well. Dr. Percy Miller, who is a neurosurgeon and is currently running a pain treatment clinic, the Center for Advanced Medicine. We're talking about uh, degenerative spine disease and why it happens. Which is the first part of your your back? to uh, degenerate or what takes the the brunt of the strain of this axial loading and uh, which is the part of the back that causes the most problems? Well, what it comes down to, Dean, is there, there are two places um, which which really get it badly, although any area can start first, depending on what you do in life, including even sporting activities and exercise. Um, certain sports uh affect different areas of the vertebral column. But in general, um, in the neck, it's what we call C5, C6, and C7. Those are the common areas where degeneration starts in the neck, again, because of this weight loading and, again, because you've got tremendous movement at the bottom of the neck because, of course, the neck and the head is turning all the time, but the thoracic spine is fixed. So you get this tremendous movement. Every time you look up, you look down, you look to the side. Exactly the same applies in the lumbar spine. It's the bottom of the lumbar spine where the weight loading and the movement um, really starts degeneration first. So the common areas where disc disease and degenerative disease occur is L4, L5, and L5S1, all at the bottom of the lumbar spine. So it's the bottom of the neck, the bottom of the lumbar spine. The thoracic spine, which is fixed, completely fixed, hardly ever gets degenerative disease or disc disease. can happen but so much less in relation to what happens in the neck and in the lumbar spine in human beings. So which part actually degenerates? Is it the, the discs that are between the vertebrae? Well, in, in the end, it's the discs, and the discs, in a sense, cause the most trouble because those are, uh, the discs are the, are the uh, parts which, so to speak, pop out or prolapse. Um, with a, a disc is like a, a cartilaginous piece of jelly almost, a piece of hard jelly consistency. And it can shoot backwards and press on nerve roots and on the spinal cord. But the disc is late in the course of degenerative change. It occurs late on. The first things which degenerate are the little joints which support the disc and which support um, the vertebral column called the facet joints. Those usually are where degeneration starts. Now, uh, one could say, we're not sure how this happened, but God made us with these little facet joints which are like little marbles. They're the size of marbles. They have two things uh, associated with them, which are real puzzles. The first is that these little joints, the size of marbles, have to bear this tremendous load, 
And the second is that they are endowed with a tremendous amount of nerve endings. So if you get a problem with the passageway, you know all about it. It hurts very, very much because of the density and the complexity of the nerve endings in the passageways. In general, disease starts in the passageways. As I said, from there, it kind of spreads. It hits ligaments, it hits the disc, it even hits the bone after a while. Even the bone um, degenerates and deteriorates with time as as, um, things happen. And in the end, you've got a deformed spine often and what we call a malaligned spine. In other words, it's not straight anymore. It's it's kind of crooked, and that makes the situation the worst. And in the end, you have end-stage degenerative disease. But long before that degenerative disease, you've got tremendous pain, tremendous stiffness, tremendous functional destruction of many aspects of your life, including things like sports and exercises and just simple walking, standing, moving, etc. Responsible degenerative disease for a tremendous amount of um, um, dysfunction in life. Costs a tremendous amount of money to the economy as well. Uh, in terms of people not able to do their jobs, not able to work, absent from work, etc. So it is a real problem in in human society. Um, I'm not sure that the incidence is becoming worse, but since more people complain about it, and because there's a bigger access um, of people in general to medical help today, and we have better ways of investigating the situation with our x-rays and our CAT scans and our MRI scans, we certainly see more and more happening every year. And, of course, people expect to be treated and delivered from this chronic pain problem, and there's no reason why in many cases they cannot be delivered from the chronic pain problem because roughly two-thirds, say 60 60%, 70%, can be helped substantially one way or another. How do you treat chronic back pain? Let's get into uh, your treatment. Yeah, well, okay, so we so like in common with all pain clinics, and yeah, we are no different, we believe in a so-called holistic and overall approach. I'm going to screen people, and I'm going to decide what line of treatment they need, whether uh, conservative or surgical. But having said that, the majority of patients get better with conservative treatment. Very, very, very few cases that are handled adequately or properly ever come to surgery. So once we have determined that we need conservative treatment, my role is to direct people to the correct uh, medical help. My other role is to put them onto the correct medicines. Now, just in terms of my role, before I discuss the, the others, the, the correct medicines is terribly important because um, the, uh, uh, degenerative disease is a long-term problem. So it's no use giving people the kind of drugs and medication which produce addiction and tolerance because they would eventually lead to a situation of danger where they have to keep increasing the doses as they become tolerant. We call it tolerance and addiction to a situation. So higher and higher doses are needed to achieve a decent pain effect. It's almost like you need more and more whiskey to get drunk the more used to the whiskey you are. Um, so, so you need to give people safe medication which they can take for the next, if necessary, 10 or 15 or 20 years without them becoming addicted or developing dangerous side effects. The other problem with the wrong drugs over and above addiction is that many of these so-called wrong drugs, and many of them are over-the-counter analgesics that you could buy without a prescription in this country, and I don't know exactly how that came about, but the problem with the over-the-counter analgesics is they also produce liver, kidney, and gastrointestinal side effects, 
which can become a real threat to your life, which can shorten your life if used in high enough dosages or uh, let's say for a long enough period of time. So I try and put people on the correct medication. But I send them, depending upon what stage of disease they're in, either to our chiropractor or our biokineticist that we work with very, very um, uh, closely, that we monitor the situation together. Um, and there are different indications for chiropractic or um, or um, um, biokineticist disease. Sometimes, again, because there's the psychological reaction whereby pain worsens your psychology and your psychology worsens your pain perception, that it's a vicious cycle. We, I have to send them to, we have a psychologist and a psychiatrist, both with well-defined roles, different roles, but well-defined roles. And, of course, we also have a an excellent radiologist at the clinic who is very well-versed and very experienced in doing pain blocks. So he can block off painful nerves or even do light burns. We call these light burns rhizotomies of ganglionotomies. He could do these light burns by putting an electrode needle under x-ray control onto the correct area, which is painful. And that works in sometimes 70 to 80% of cases. So there are generally six people involved. That's the neurosurgeon, the chiropractor, biokineticist, psychologist, psychiatrist, and the pain blocker, if needed. But we have other people on tap. For example, sometimes with chronic hip joint pain or knee joint pain, we need orthopedic help. So we've got that available as well. So we've got other specialists that we can draw on, even though they're not permanent parts of the pain clinic, of the pain unit. So one tries to use everything as best as one can. But the thing to do first is to study the patient well, see every aspect of the pain, never rush in. Most importantly, educate and talk to the patient because if patients have either wrong expectations, wrong understanding or unrealistic expectations, the situation becomes non-controllable. You have to have a patient who works with you and you have to work with the patient. So a lot of it depends on rapport and building up a rapport with the patient, also not judging the patient. Many people judge patients. They think they're always respond differently to pain. Perhaps they think this patient shouldn't have been so-called in inverted commas, weak enough to take so many drugs or tablets. The situation is never, it's never called upon to judge patients. You can explain to them what they're doing wrong, but you must keep the judgment out of the issue. By the same token, you have to be, and this is another part of my role in terms of education, you have to be honest with patients. Sometimes we see patients who have, and there's no doubt about it, psychological pain. Or in other words, they're, psychological and functional reaction to the pain is out of all proportion to what could be described as a relatively low-grade pain. So now if you tell a patient that it's all in their head, for example, like many, unfortunately, like many practitioners and doctors and paramedics do, you say it's all in your head, then the patient says, but I'm not crazy, I'm I'm not mad, I'm not this, I can really feel the pain, and you've already lost the patient, you've alienated the patient. So what you have to say to the patient is, look, I'm not arguing that you don't feel pain. I'm just trying to explain to you the mechanism of where your pain is coming from. It's not to say you don't have pain or that you're imagining it. It's only a question of explaining to you how the pain is coming back. So there's a lot of subtleties and nuances in the whole situation. And that applies to all the therapists in the pain group. Tell us a bit more about the, the nerve blocks and, and where, what you do them for and how it's actually done and how this affects the pain. Is the permanent solution or a temporary solution? Many of the nerve block 
are more diagnostic. In other words, you're doing a nerve block with a, a, a shorter, long-acting local anesthetic, which is going to wear off because you want to know, is the pain coming from this area or that area? Because there, let's say there are a number of areas which could be producing the pain. We call them pain generators, particularly in the spine. So you do it on a, on a, on, on a diagnostic basis, but also therapeutic, at least for a while, because we do what we call, we break the pain cycle. Now, the pain cycle is very important because when you get pain, the pain makes muscle spasm. The muscle spasm makes the pain uh, worse as the muscle in your back contracts, let's say. So that there's another vicious cycle set up. Muscle spasm makes pain. Pain makes immobility. Immobility and pain makes more muscle spasm, etc. So you want to break that cycle. And that works quite well for a few weeks and sometimes helps the patient tremendously. But the real way that the blocks work for most types of pain is when the pain blocker specialist uh, that we have at the clinic does what we call ganglionotomies and rhizotomies. That is, they give the nerve a light burn in the correct area of the nerve. It's really a very simple technical procedure. You're in hospital uh, at our clinic. You're admitted. Uh, for a, it's done in theater. You're admitted for a half a day. It's done not really under the anesthetic, but under sedation. We need the patient to wait to talk to us to tell us when the electrode and the tingle or the pins and needles from the electricity is in the right place where their pain is. And it's, it's really a very simple um, uh, technical procedure. So they're in hospital for approximately half a day. Now, ganglionotomies and rhizotomies often control the pain for 6 to 8 to 10 months at a time in 70 to 80% of cases. Then the pain comes back. Then they often have to repeat the procedure. But it's not too big a price to pay. To have to come into the hospital, let's say, for a half a day or even one day, uh, once or twice a year, to be relatively pain-free, maybe not completely pain-free, but relatively pain-free, to at least allow you to live your life and do what you have to do in terms of your life and in terms of social integration. Unfortunately, we do have tremendous problems with the medical aids. Part of the reason I understand, much of the situation was abused in the earlier years. Uh, people were doing pain burns and rhizotomies and things, sometimes with no indication. Uh, the medical aids, of course, resented this and tried to clamp down. But the end result has been an extreme reaction to the other side. So that today you have a real fight, particularly with certain medical aids, to actually allow the procedure to be authorized at least in private practice. This is all done in, in an outpatient setting. Um, you said there's no admissions overnight, and you use imaging and you use uh, theater to do yeah. all of this. And what about yes. rehabilitation? What do you do about rehabilitation after, um, well, after see, this? I know you said that is that is exactly where the the biokineticist, as opposed to the chiropractor, uh, comes into the picture. The chiropractics of the situation. And of course, there's a lot of debate as to what's scientific and non-scientific in chiropractic practice in general. But a chiropractor, whether one believes in the science of it or not, are extraordinarily adept at relieving chronic pain with their methods. They really do a very good job with this, but they are not there for rehabilitation purposes. When it comes to rehabilitation, like building up strength, getting better posture and balance, in other words, trying to prevent the situation from getting worse or recurring again, giving the patient um, instructions of how to control themselves, comport themselves, literally how to sit and stand and 
etc. Then you need the... What is the second most common cause of pain, of chronic pain besides back pain or the second most common area? Uh, yes, there's, there's little doubt about that. The second most common area after uh, neck and lumbar and back pain, generalized arthritis. We get a tremendous amount of people who've got arthritis where they are helped to a certain extent by rheumatologists. Um, you know, these are people who deal specifically with, um, you know, arthritic pain and joint disease and joint pain because joint degeneration is a tremendous problem. Um, joint degeneration or inflammation, there's certain diseases which cause inflammation, which, which follows on vertebral column pain. And um, the rheumatologists take them uh, often a very good part of the way towards pain relief, but they still need some help. So we see a tremendous amount of patients also with joint and arthritic pain, and we can help them as well. Again, it's a question of various forms of medication and various forms of intra-articular joint injections there you have to be careful because, um, for example, one of the common mainstays of um, intra-articular or intra-joint injection, intra-articular means intra-joint, into the joint injection, is, is steroids and things like cortisone. And there you've got to be very careful because very high doses of cortisone um, into joints produces its own effect, not only upon the joint, sometimes even hastening degeneration, but can cause body effects, side effects in the body. So you've got to be very careful. But generally, we can help the arthritic patients to a great extent as well. Again, the question of chiropractic and, um, you know, biogenetic treatment and the question of psychological help becomes really important in these patients. Um, and uh, we actually get quite a good success rate. In a funny kind of way, it's easier to deal with generalized joint pain than with specific vertebral column pain in terms of the prognosis and the relief that you can give the patient. Do you want to tell us about any of the uh, pain medications? Do you give any pain medication? not talking about the opiates and analgesics. Do you give any uh, tablets actually uh, that affect the nerves or modulate the nerves or stop yes, the nerves yes. firing? Um, one, one of the, the great pain-relieving medications that uh, came about uh, and that we use a lot of nowadays is a medication called Lyrica. Now, Lyrica has got a specific action on sore, painful nerves, but it's non-addictive. It's non-tolerance-producing. It doesn't kill your kidneys or your liver uh, or, or even your stomach. It's got side effects and high dosages, everything from dizziness even to temporary memory loss if you take too much. But, of course, you make sure that the patient doesn't take too much, and if the patient gets side effects, you manipulate the dose. The, the evolution went from things like Tegretol, which was specific for nerve pain problems, all the way to a medication called Neurontin, and then the final arbiter was the Lyrica, which had been present for a few years. Um, but there are many other medications which control pain on a prophylactic basis, chronic pain. For example, we can make use of mood elevators and antidepressants. Now, here, patients must appreciate we don't give them to the patients specifically because the patients are depressed, but not that at all in many cases. It's simply that many of these antidepressants for example, a tablet called um, Symbalta or Simgen. Simgen is the generic. They have an actual pain-relieving effect. Others are called tripoline. Tripoline is generally old-fashioned, but it has a very good pain-relieving effect. Um, so mood elevators and mood stabilizers, that is things which stabilize the mood, also have a very good pain-relieving effect. Again, not because we are telling the patient that you need psychological mood stabilization, but medication which stabilizes the mood, which are often also anti-epileptic medications, such as what we call epilim and lamictin, are very good at mood stabilization, but they're also very good at pain control. There are tablets called beta blockers, 
that is indoral, which used to be used for blood pressure and and uh, heart control, but indoral itself, which can't be given to asthmatics, unfortunately, because it causes worsening asthma, um, is good in terms of controlling pain, and so are the muscle relaxants. The prototype muscle relaxant was a tablet called Baclofen or Lyrizol. Again, harmless in terms of the fact that there's no addiction, there's no liver and kidney problem, so you can use it long-term. Today, newer ones have come out. The last one that really uh, went into the market and is really effective is called Microcam, which has only been here for a few years. Uh, Baclofen and Lyrizol have been here for many, many years. Now, in some patients, um, they do much better with... Um, muscle relaxation, literally by giving it to them in a very small pump which fits into the spinal cord. That is an end-of-the-road situation for pain and spasticity relief. Um, and a very expensive solution to the problem, which many medical aids are ever do, do support in this country. Um, but in, in effect, if we say tablets like Tegretol, Lyrica, mood elevators, mood stabilizers, muscle relaxants, beta blockers, anti-epileptic agents, all of these are, are good, harmless, control pain adequately, can be used for many years if necessary without producing addiction uh, or tolerance. So these medications can be slowly tapered off and stopped if necessary at a later stage, if the patient wants to or needs to get off them or if the pain gets better or whatever. So the pain medication exists, but unfortunately many people don't know about it so they keep on giving patients, the poor patients, I must say, the poor patients, the victims, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, narcotics, which are no good for chronic pain on a long-term basis, or they're giving them over-the-counter pain analgesics, which are no good for chronic pain. Narcotics and over-the-counter analgesics are great for acute pain for two or three weeks because they won't do any harm. But after that, they are inapplicable. So people, unfortunately, still want to use them. And they then cause a lot of damage and harm, unfortunately. Now, if people want to come to your pain clinic, where do they start? Who do they see first? Uh, they see me first because what I'm trying to do is provide direction from myself, literally referred out to these various other people. Obviously, I try and take a hand in treatment myself. Sometimes the treatment is inapplicable for me and I just need one of these other therapists that I've mentioned. The fortunate thing about us all is that we all literally work in the same corridor in the Center for Advanced Medicine. We're literally an office apart from each other, which is how we all got together and decided to start the clinic. So it's very easy for us to communicate and send patients to different places in the pain clinic, which is a big advantage compared to many other pain clinics where you have to make an appointment and send the patient across town with transport to another place. You don't need to do that here because they're all literally within a okay. corridor space. But it starts off with me. Um, they phone and they book an appointment with my receptionist once I see the patient. Can you give... I then Plus, make a Can you direction. give us the number? We're about to wrap, we're about to wrap up. Can you give us the, the number, please? How do yeah, people get hold of you? Yeah, it was apologies for this internet loss. Uh, but yeah, no problem at all. Okay, I'll give it. So it's 011-440-9702 or 011-440-9599. Those are the two numbers. Thank you, Dr. Percy Miller, who is running the pain clinic at the Center for Advanced Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Today. Thank you. Have a great week and stay safe.